resolutions. Anyone have a resolution? No, you don't have to share. You want to share it? You could share it. That's all right. Quit smoking. All right. That's a good resolution. All right. And we could probably go around and have some resolutions that are like, yep, this is a resolution that I did. Um, and every year I make fun of this just because it, it's funny to me. How long do most resolutions last? Does anyone, have you heard the story or read the articles? Hmm? It, some make it into February, the really good ones. Anyone have a resolution to read the Bible all the way through and then you realize, oh my goodness, I uh, didn't make it. Yeah, uh, most of them only last a week or two. The ones that really stick make it into February. And so this is a good Sunday to do something like 10 steps to a better life as a sermon or uh, how to get a handle on my money this year or how to forgive people that I've not been able to forgive or whatever else. Um, it's, it's not that those things are bad or whatever. It's not that resolutions are bad. In fact, we could all probably spend a little bit of time and, you know, say things like spending less time on our screens and more time actually interacting with real people, um, less time uh, worrying or uh, paying less attention to our friends or follower count and more or maybe learning a foreign language, or taking those swim lessons, or the cooking lessons, or, or whatever, reading more books. Um, there's something really good about turning a calendar page and having it feel like a fresh start. Those of us out of school, or uninvolved with uh, education, which isn't a big number in this room, actually, but um, wasn't it nice way back in the day when a new school year would start or there were these built-in rhythms besides the first of a year that were fresh starts and new starts? Um, but there's, there's something about a new calendar year that we go, okay, I'm going to give some energy into a thing that I could have just as easily done three weeks ago or whatever else, but here we are, I have a new calendar. In one of the beautiful things in this for us followers of Christ is that every single day is a New Year day. I know that's cliche, but every single day is a, an opportunity to engage with the good news of Christ, which is because of his life, his death, his resurrection, we have new life. No matter what yesterday was or five minutes ago was, we can receive the free gift of salvation which God gives to us through Christ Jesus. And so every, actually every breath is a potential for a new start. And so I don't really have a big series or anything that we're doing. I know you don't care about any of this, but I always feel like I need to say this. Um, today, we're asking the question, why are you here? And um, and I think it, hopefully this will weave together okay. We've actually got some pretty big questions this morning that we're going to hover over. And the first one is this. What's your favorite bird? A loon. Nice. Anyone else? Team loon? Nope. Just one loony. Okay. <laughs> oh, two, you were team loon also. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah. Cardinal. Anyone else? Cardinal? Few? Okay. An Oreo, morning dove, cockatiel, mm. penguin, yeah, now we're talking. What else, huh? 
A chickadee. Yep. A little quiet over here on this side of the house. A woodpecker. Very nice. A vampire bat? <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> a sparrow. Well, his eyes are on the sparrow. And I know he loves me too. So, no, that was a good song? Okay. Uh, yeah, favorite bird. I know that's a little bit of a, like, uh, elementary class question, right? It's like asking a kid, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite food? What's your favorite sports team that always lets you down? What's your, um, what's your favorite bird? Uh, my favorite bird, oh, man, I'll tell you later. This is not it. Anyone know this bird, though? Killdeer, right? I mean, not... I know you were thinking of his name. You'd run into him. And this is Bob the Killdeer. Um, so Killdeer are great. Uh, I don't know if you've had much interaction with the Killdeer or not. They're fascinating on a lot of levels. Killdeer, um, well, this is from uh, uh, Harold Cohn's Thoughts of Field. Um, and he writes this morning kind of about this big question that we're, we're looking at. But he says this. Um, Kildare's nesting is a very interesting thing. He says they make no elaborate preparation for their family. A few stones will be scraped together for a nest. And the female will lay four-ish buff white eggs with chocolate brown spots. And about one and a half inches in size. So your thumb and then half your thumb, right? And uh, it's actually a pretty big egg for uh, uh, such a small bird. And there's actually, there's a reason for this. See, killdeer hatchlings come right out pretty much into danger right away. They're in, on the ground, on a nest, and they have to be ready to run from enemies and hunt for food nearly from go. So a big egg is necessary to hold the advanced precocious. I had to look up precocious this week. You probably already knew what precocious means. It means advanced for your age. I thought it meant snooty. Um, which I don't know if killdeer are snooty. I've never talked to one. But the advanced, precocious, bright-eyed, down-covered baby killdeer, it's a much larger egg than a baby robin, which is born blind and naked and helpless when it's hatched, but also protected in a nest. So here's the thing. There is a purpose in it, as there is for everything that occurs in nature. A little bit later, Cohn writes, One of the barest essentials for understanding nature is to know that everything has a purpose. Nothing merely exists. Everything exists for a reason, and to know the reason is the beginning of natural wisdom. So everything exists for a reason. I like that thought. Nothing merely exists. Now, I know right away in that there is a given that we're saying and that everything is created and everything has purpose. And yet, even if you have a, uh, uh, a, a non-created order view of, the, of everything, you can't help but look at, and I'm not asking you to or someone to make the jump from uh, design to designer, but there's certainly order in everything. That uh, One of my favorite ones is the, the change in our own eyes that go from 
seeing color in detail to seeing black and white as the light changes. There's two different receptors in our eyes. There's rods and there's cones, right? Rods, I think, are for color and detail. Cones are for uh, big shape. And did you know that the change, I might have flipped that around, but whatever, it's not my notes, it's free. So the, but the time change that it takes for our eyes to completely change over from detail, sight, color to black and white shape, it's the same time that it takes as the sun sets to go from dusk to dark. Same amount of time, which is why it's so like, it's not just your pupils collapsing when somebody shines a flashlight in your eye or somebody has their high beams on. Thank you very much when you're driving. It's, it's, our eyes are not able to flip between rods and cones that fast. There's a design and there's a purpose for everything. And to know that everything has a purpose and everything exists for a reason, uh, Harold Cohn says is the beginning of natural wisdom. And a little bit later, he writes this. He says, the most fundamental explanation of anything is the purpose it serves. And no one understands much about anything unless they know its purpose. No one understands much about anything unless they know its purpose. You can know a messload about cars, how they work, what goes into them, how they break, how to fix them, the history, Henry Ford, all that jazz. But if you don't actually know how to drive, you know a lot about a thing, but you don't know its intended purpose, right? And we could go down the list of a ton of different Things in that, you could know how to make books, you could know about the binding process, you could know about printing process, whatever else. But if you don't read or you don't know that books are to convey ideas, then do you really know the purpose of books? It's fascinating in this how many people collect things but never use the things they collect. And an argument could be made that they may appreciate it, but you don't really appreciate a thing until you use the thing for what it's for. And one of my favorite, this is just a, I went through a season where I really liked American Pickers. Confession, okay? I know that's a full, like, silly, made-for-TV. They don't really go up to somebody's house that, oh, a whole TV show, and you're showing up here. I had no idea you were coming. But one of the fun things about those kind of shows is when they would pick up some random thing or Antiques Roadshow or just any of these kind of, I'm going to show you something that you might not know. And then they go, here's what the thing is, but not just here's what the thing is, but here's what the thing's for. You ever played that game with like Victorian around the house stuff that uh, I'm sure there's click slides that could be done for what is this and then what it is. See, the thing is, it's important to know what it is, but it's most important to know what it's for. What it's for. Which gets us to our question and it gets us to our reading today. So I don't know where you're at in life. Maybe this has been a great season. Maybe your tank is full. You've been around people all week and you need to be around people. Or you've not been around people all week and you need to not be around people. 
whatever, maybe it's been one of those great weeks and so everything's full for you. Or maybe it's been one of those really tough weeks that this is a reminder of difficulties or uncertainties or whatever else. Um, The question of what are you here for is a, okay, let's look at this and see what's happening for each of us. So it's not a just who are you, but it's a what are you here for? And that's the question that's hovering around for the psalmist in Psalm chapter 8. So Psalm chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, here we go again. When I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And then the psalmist says that you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor and you've made them rulers over the works of your hands and you've put everything under their feet and all the flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all the paths of the sea. It's cool to me that the psalmist here, and this psalm is attributed to David, that uh, begins by saying the Your glory is on display in the heavens. When I consider the works of your hands or the works of your fingers, and then what is that? Looking at the moon and the stars. And so getting back to what Harold Cohn says, everything that's created has a purpose. And when you know a thing's purpose, then it gives that thing value or gives that thing meaning. Or it. So what is the purpose of the moon and the stars? What's the purpose of the moon and the stars? In a pre-GPS world, right? The stars serve a super important purpose for navigating, for showing seasons, uh, for uh, telling things that are going on in the world around you. The moon serves an incredible purpose without LED flashlights, right? The moon serves an incredible purpose with the tides, Without the tides, this world would be a very different planet. And so the moon serves a purpose there. And the moon also serves purpose in showing uh, different times within a month and within a season and whatever. I love that David, in looking out and seeing these things that God has created, goes, I see these things and it makes me wonder and it makes me think. When was the last time you were in a space where you were overwhelmed? Where maybe it was at a symphony and you were sitting there with others around you taking in the wonder and the beauty of this music and it was so full and it was so rich and the artists, the musicians and the conductor were just in sync. And you were overwhelmed or overcome. Or maybe it was, uh, maybe it was at a birth. Or maybe it was at the receiving of some good news. Or maybe it was on a hike. Or maybe it was working in your yard. Or maybe it was listening to your uh, youngster tell you a story that they were creating. When was the last time that you, like David, looked out on the work of God's hand and wondered and wondered. Now again, I know that this 
invites us to come into a place where we go, okay, well, God created this. And this morning isn't a uh, convince you God created everything or a certain storyline for how God created everything, that this is how it is or whatever. Sometimes when we talk about these things, we feel this weight of, okay, now everybody needs to understand this and this is the process and this is how it is. Instead, I think it's good for us from time to time to just look out on a thing. God, man, there's something amazing in this. That this has meaning. When I look out and I see all that you've made, God, everything set in its right place and its right purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is exactly how God intended it right now, right? There are tsunamis. There are freak storms that dump five feet of snow that 37 people, last I heard in Buffalo, died. It doesn't mean when I look out on creation, I only see the beautiful, or I only see the wonder, or that's all the way it should be, and the rest, I I don't know. Because Scripture also tells us that God created, but because of sin and rebellion in the fall, now is not the way God intends it or the way it will one day be. But even with the fall and the brokenness of creation, there is still a sense of that is, there is something right, there is purpose in that. So this isn't a new question. It's not a new question. What is humanity and what are human beings? This is the type of question that is daunting to start from scratch for your research, right? Uh, Typing into Google, why am I here? (laughs) Hitting search and then just seeing where it goes, right? And if you're really daring, doing it in the I feel lucky button, right? You're not even going to preview it. Just where, why am I here? And then let the algorithms tell you why you're here, which unfortunately some people do. But the question of why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? Now, here's the just parenthetical pause. I, this morning, I'm not going to convince you on why you're here. Maybe it's been a long time since you've asked the question, why am I here? Why am I here? Maybe it's one you're wrestling with even right now. Your storyline isn't going the way that you wanted your storyline to go. And so you're looking at your job or your family or whatever details of life aren't what you want them to be. And you're going, what is going on? And why am I doing this? What am I here for? What's the purpose of this? It's the kind of question that gets asked in uh, you know, a philosophy 101, right? Why are we here? The big questions of life. Um, I did in my uh, not exhaustive research, (laughs) but I came across this one website that had uh, almost a hundred multiple choice answers to the question of why am I here? And then based on how you answered that, it filtered you into certain uh, philosophies of life. And some of them went like this. We're here to work like dogs, pay taxes, get old, get sick, and die without ever knowing why. Team happiness. Uh, We're here to save the planet. Uh, We're here to find people who knew 
why they were here and follow their lead. People like Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad. We're here for reasons we don't understand and never will, so we're supposed to just blindly stumble through life trying to do the best we can. I think actually they're friends with one. To be torn between our instincts and societal expectations, that's why we're here, hopefully reaching some sort of compromise until we die. We're here to work ourselves, overcome our neuroses, understand our childhood, become self-individualized humans, release our inner children, unleash our repressed emotions, and free up our impulses. That's our next sermon series. We're here to attain total spiritual enlightenment. We could go down the list. There's almost a hundred of these, and let me just let you know, they were beauties. Some were quotes of Freud. Those were fun. Just this and this and this and this and this and this. Anyone take philosophy in high school? Was it offered in your high school? College? College, I don't know if it's better or not. I remember my friends that took philosophy in high school, and I just kept thinking, like, you should not be taking philosophy. These questions, you are not at all prepared for these questions. And the things you're saying to me, I don't even think you're pronouncing right. These are the struggles. Why am I here? Why am I here? If you're here this morning and you're asking this, and maybe your default place is the universe is random, and you've come from a power to the tens of the billions of randomness, and here you are. Um, That's faith. That's faith. And that's not an uh, empirical thing that you can, uh, you can come to as a belief system without being led into it. And so to some, they say to step into Christianity or to see a God who created. And I'm not even talking about the process. Because it's fun for me to think about God creating in six days. And then in creating in six days, uh, however many thousand years ago, let's say the earth is young. And then making it a way that's going to mess everyone up to make it look like it's older. But God doesn't seem to be a God who's a trickster. And so it's also super fun for me to think about God who is moving and creating and shifting and designing and bumping his order. And regardless, it's just as much a leap of faith to say nothing and random and pointless as it is to say there is a designer in order. Now that doesn't necessarily lead you to a uh, a personal God, right? And we could go through the philosophy of the founding fathers, deism and whatever else without God being personal. But that isn't the point this morning. But the the thing I want to invite us into is that it is not unreasonable to say that there is one outside of and beyond us, even if we can't all the way understand and explain. And I was listening. I kind of wanted to actually show, but we don't have an extra 10 minutes. But if you want to, the Bible Project has a great video on just God. 
in the opening of it, uh, uh, the Mackie and John, I think his name is, are, are talking back and forth. And they're like, how do we talk about God and how do we define God? And maybe you've read uh, the book Flat World, but it's very interesting to think of the dimension that we live in if we only lived on a two-dimension plane. But if there was an object that was three-dimensional and then it moved through our two-dimension plane, how would we describe it? It's a point, then it's a line that's longer. If we were looking down on the plane, we would say it's a point, maybe it's an expanding thing and then a small thing. Is, are any of those things really describing the thing that can't be contained in two dimensions? No, because it's a three-dimension thing. It's interesting to me that we get glimpses of God and God reveals himself to us through his word and in the person of Christ. But even in that, it sometimes feels like our language isn't enough to describe God or his character. And we're going to look at that this morning as we talk about God's glory. What does that mean? We sing about the glory of God. We, we say God uh, has glory, but, but what does that mean? Now, the rewind on that, what is the source of our purpose? What's the source of your purpose? What is the source of your saying why you're here? Is it a thing that somebody else tells you? You had a coach who thought you were great in a certain sport or a certain activity and said you were made to play badminton. Or you are so amazing at piano, you were made to play piano. Or you, whatever, is it, is it a thing that we define ourselves? Do we come up with our own self-actualized purpose? And if we do, then what does that mean if my purpose bumps into your purpose? Whose purpose wins? Or does it all just boil down to all we need is love? And if love is the whole of all of this and we can do whatever we want on this list, but just be loving, then, then what is love? And who defines love? Me, you, society, society now, society two centuries ago? And so this thing of the source of purpose, there's a lot of philosophy and there's a lot of theology and there's a lot of ologies and isms around purpose. But I just wanted this morning to say, if you are the source of your purpose and you are the definer of your purpose, it will always come up short. It will always come up short. We are incapable of speaking purpose into our own life. We're incapable. We need outside And the beauty of this, we see this. So the psalmist, Psalm chapter 8, God, the heavens declare your wonders and your glory. When I look around at the works of your fingers, what a great word. Just the works of your like, and then stars and the moon and everything, atoms. The psalmist was being drawn back into the story from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So 
they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and over the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Someday down the road, we'll do a study through Genesis 1 through 11. It'll be super in-depth and a lot of fun. But the beauty in this text in the beginning is we see is the one who is giving purpose. It's God. It's God. Now, the question in this, and I know this is a little bit like heady, like, Jay, is this what we're going to do for a year? Like, this is not super practical or super applicable or super, like, I don't know, this is kind of heady. The reason this stuff is important is if the most important thing is just what you uh, produce or what you do, then none of this matters. But if the core of who you are is what those things flow from, then this stuff is super important. See, God created you. You. Not the universe. Not some unknown spirit. Not some random act between a guy and a gal. Not some, whatever the storyline is in the world away from a biblical worldview. You are here because God intended. Even if the beginning of that intended feels rough or bent or whatever. To them in the very beginning, and we are in line of that, you are created in the image of God. It's this word, the Imago Dei. You are an image bearer. And you were created for a reason. I've never done this before. This was fun this week. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of mankind? What is the point? It's to glorify God and enjoy God forever. Your purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Didn't see that coming, did you? But here's the thing in this. This isn't the kinds of stuff that we teach in church world. The kinds of stuff we teach in church world is you can be a history maker. You can change everything. You fulfill your destiny. You do the stuff that God has created you to do. You know what God's created you to do? You can crawl on your belly and fail at everything in your life and never change a lick of history. But if you glorify God with your life, you are fulfilling why he created you. Anyone ever feel the weight of I'm not really making that much of a difference? Let's be honest. We're 16, coming up on 16 years for Water City. This is significant. And this is meaningful. And there's not a Sunday that I don't show up here that I'm not humbled to think that you have made this your day today. You could be literally anywhere. There's way better shows in town. Way better. Bigger budgets. Better, cleaner bathrooms. All the chairs match. (laughs) 
But here you are. And it's very humbling to me to think that this very just, well, let's see what happens. Battlestar Galactica, ragtag bunch, let's do this, has hopefully become meaningful for you and has a placeholder in your processing and growth and faith. And I don't take lightly the fact that you let me get up and ramble for a good chunk of time, a couple, three TED Talks, or that you go, Jay, you said this, I, let's, let's dig in on this. I'm going to get coffee this week. That on the outside can feel, and looking in on this, this could be just, uh, you guys don't even own a building. You're renting. How many people are on staff? How many baptized last year? How many salvations? How many filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes, I have to fill that out. How many? See, even though those are the things that we measure worth, or worth gets measured with, Amy spilled off on me. She's reading a memoir by Madeline Langle. And in... In the memoir, and I'll probably butcher this quote, but she said, Jesus never said, count my sheep. He said, feed my sheep. And she said, the problem is too many are counting the sheep and not feeding the sheep. And because of that, I'm hungry. And so the significance is never how many chairs are full or how many match. The significance this morning is that where two or three gathered, there is Christ Jesus in our midst, our midst, and doing a work, doing a work. Your encounter with God this morning may have come through just a verse in the song we sang, and that was just for you. And the rest of this is just Phil. Or I don't know. But the significance of this isn't based on the things that we sometimes think are the significance. And so in church world, we very rarely talk about your purpose in life. It's not, we'll talk about God's will at a different point. Because it does come into play in this. But God's will for your life is not a single GPS line that you follow or don't follow and can never get back on. God's will for your life is that you would love him and love your neighbor. God's will for your life is that you would glorify him and that your forever life would be in enjoying him. You were made to reflect his glory. We see that in Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar, God says, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made God's glory. It's a huge thing, and we bring it up, and you're like, Jay, it's seven minutes after, and really, you're going to talk about God's glory now and define it? You ever had someone really well define God's glory? Hopefully, Maybe you've had, because I'm not about to. 
One theologian says God's glory is difficult to define. It's not like a basketball. God's glory is not a thing that we pick up, measure, spin, look at, have empirical data on. God's glory is more like beauty. You know when something is beautiful and you know when something is not beautiful. Now, we're all smart enough to know beauty is affected by context and by culture, which is why it's important to be in a community of faith because God's glory is also shaped by what God is doing in the lives of others. Why? Because you were made to reflect the glory of God. You ever feel like your life of faith is is pandering off or winding down and if you look at it you see you are not actually in a community of faith don't be surprised then when you don't see god at work all around you god's glory is revealed through his image bearers also the 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 hebrew word that often gets used for glory it's kavat and it's and it's 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 actually it has to do with the idea of something being full or dense or having girth or weight. This idea of God's glory having a weight, a weightiness. It's a thing that we can't define, but it's a thing that we can... Well, I'll just lean on Piper. John Piper says, The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. Holiness being set-apartness, otherness. It is the going public of his holiness. I love that. God's glory is his going public of his holiness. Isaiah gets caught up into the heavens before he begins his ministry, and he sees what's going on around the throne and the angels and the multiple wings. Here's the song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he hears glory to God in the highest heavens. Glory. And he is the weight of that moment. And we are connected to that right from the beginning. You are created, linked to the image of God. You are not God. God is not a divine spark within you. He has written eternity into your heart, and so you are drawn to things deeper, but you are not oneness with the created God, or with you are not oneness with the universe. God is completely separate from you. He is completely separate from me. He is not, and here's the other thing in this. So God created, but God didn't create because God was somehow less without having created. The Bible talks about God being perfect. And that perfection means in in a state that is not just unchanging, but is complete. And so God didn't create because God's a narcissist and he needed somebody to be like, hey, shout out to you, like, 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 like button. God created before time began, God was whole and complete within his relationship with himself. What does that mean, Jay? I don't know. Three dimensions passing through two. What does it mean? And yet it is what it is. God didn't create us out of an incompleteness in himself. 
And he didn't create us out of a, 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 a violent act. God, out of perfect love in relationship with himself, created humanity that would bear his image and be in relationship with him. Not because he was incomplete, but because his love is perfect. Now, this is a thing that I can't get my head all the way around. I'd love a cup of coffee, except we might have COVID. Um, how does your obedience and posture to God, how does that increase his glory? Have you ever thought about that? How my life and what I do with it and how I respond to God, whether I'm obedient or disobedient, whether I love my neighbor or choose to not love my neighbor, whether I live the way I was intended and created to live, how does that increase God's glory? Or how does my disobedience, how does that affect God's glory? That is a like mess with your head stuff. But Paul, grabbing this, picks it up and he says, Whatever, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So I can't define for you what God's glory is. It's a sense. You ever, you ever walk into a room where bad news is already dropped? And you walk in and it's there and you just know it. Maybe you were expecting it. Maybe you thought it was coming. But in you walk, and there it is. You just know it. Or maybe you walk into the room, and it's the flip of that. And, and, and you're at the coffee shop, and somebody has just proposed. And you don't know them, but man, you're just, you know it. The glory of God. The glory of God. So why are you here? The chief end of humanity, the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Paul says that we are whatever we do, and he's course-correcting some stuff here, so it's funny that he gets to this place, but he's like, listen, stop messing everything up. Whatever you do, do it for God's glory. Your job, your laundry, your devotion time, your bill paying, your doctor going, your things that are really seem spiritual and things that seem really mundane. Let all that you do, do it for the glory of God. Well, Jay, what does that mean? How do I do that? What does that actually look like? Would you just tell me? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like me putting myself first. It doesn't look like me doing it for the props of others. It doesn't look like me just quick selfie while I serve them. It doesn't look like me making myself look better. But see, that's the hard thing because everything in our culture right now says do it all for your glory. And that's where the tension is for us. Because everything we do, it's so that we look better at work or so that we're noticed for the raise or that we're noticed by the girl or the guy or our kids or our in-laws or whatever. 
What does it mean to do everything we do that only God would be glorified by it? I still haven't said what that even looks like. We're going to dig into this a little bit more next week. What does it look like for you to live for the glory of God? Here's a story on what it a little bit looks like. When Jewish psychiatrist Frank or Viktor Frankl was arrested by the Nazis in World War II, he was stripped of everything, his property, his family, his possessions. He had up to that point been spending years researching and writing a book on the importance of finding meaning in life. And when he arrived at Auschwitz, the infamous death camp that we know of, even his manuscript, which he had hidden in the lining of his coat, was taken away. He said, I had to undergo and overcome the loss of my spiritual child, this book. Now it seemed as if nothing and no one would survive me, neither a physical nor a spiritual child of my own. I found myself confronted with the question of whether under such circumstances my life was ultimately void of any meaning. Have you been there? Is there meaning to what I'm doing? My kids didn't turn out the way I thought they should, and I've invested decades, or my job, or my whatever. He was still wrestling with that question a few days later when the Nazis forced the prisoners to give up their clothes. He said, I had to surrender my clothes. And in turn, I inherited the worn-out rags of an inmate who had been sent to the gas chamber. Instead of so many pages of my manuscript, I found in the pocket of the newly acquired coat a single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book which contained the Jewish prayer, Shema Yisrael. The hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. How should I have interpreted such a coincidence other than as a challenge to lie my thoughts instead of, or to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper? How should I see this as Anything other than a challenge to live my thoughts rather than just write my thoughts. Later, Frankel reflected on his ordeal and he wrote in the book he did eventually write called Man's Search for Meaning. He said there's nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. If you have a why, you can do the how. What is our why? There are a lot of doors to choose from in this life. Door number one, open it up. Your why is yourself. Live for pleasure, live for abundance, whatever you can get to make your life more comfortable. Door number two is to live for others. Do what you can do to make their life more comfortable. And that could be altruistic. That could be for their sake. It could be for your sake. Door number three is live because there's no reason to any of this. And then chase those. 
Door number four is there's no point to any of this and I'm done. It's the door of despair. Door number five, door number six, door number seven. We could go on and on and on and on. The purpose to our lives is a purpose that is, it's not one we come up with ourselves. This isn't self-actualized. The purpose of your life, church, the purpose of mine is to glorify God. It's to glorify God. It's to glorify God. And the beauty in this is then it also is to enjoy eternity with God. And so the thing that he created in the beginning that was broken when the Adam and Eve is the thing that all of time is moving forward toward the perfect relationship we will one day have with God. Last quick story that we don't have time for, but here we are. So there's this old story of, and I don't know if it's parable or anecdote, but I, I like it, is uh, one day Ronald Reagan went into a nursing home. And in going into this nursing home, he was introduced to uh, one of one of uh, the ladies there. Her name was Francine, and she was 103. 103. President Reagan comes up to Francine. He's interacting with her, and, and he says to Francine, do you know who I am? And she looks at him with the same face. And she goes, no, I, I don't know who you are. But if you ask one of the nurses, they can probably tell you who you are. <laughs> right? How, if that actually happened would that have just lowered the most powerful person in the free world at that point? But how incredibly true, because Francine needed somebody in her life probably to tell her who she was. And see, the reality is, is that we walk around with, I walk around with this sense of, do you know who I am? And it's not the question. It's the, don't you know who I am? And the reality is, is I need to walk around with the actual question. Do you know who I am? And see, we live in a society that isn't real comfortable with asking that out, but is super comfortable with the idea of groups telling everyone else who they are. And that is one of the toxic lies of our generation. But it's actually not new. See, no one else can define who you are. And you can't define who you are. Who you are is who God created you to be. You don't get to self-actualize. I don't get to self-enlighten. I get to surrender. And that is the flip of the script that is the good news to our culture that says join our team or identify the way we say you should identify. That is for God alone. Why? Because he has created us as image bearers 
to reflect his glory, to reflect his glory. Now, I know that plays out in a lot of very interesting ways that isn't the right way to leave a sermon. But that's where we stop this morning. What does it mean for you to live in such a way that you glorify God? What does it mean? What does it mean? I could tell you what it means for me, but I don't want you to emulate me. I don't want you to think the way that I know God is doing something through me. And I can tell you there's a tell. I have a tell. But I don't want you to think that the way God does something for me is the way God has to do something for you. That is not the way this works. But what would it mean for you to sit in the space this year as we move into a new year and a new calendar to go, God, what do I do to glorify you? What does this look like? How do I live? How do I marriage? How do I single? How do I child? How do I student? How do I work? How do I worship? Who am I? God, who am I? And turn down all of the other voices and sit in silence with his word because he has spoken. We're tempted to look to the other places, to the quick TED Talk or to fast forward this YouTube video if that's what you're doing to get to the end. Hopefully it makes a point. But what would it mean for us to sit in silence and go, God, okay, you said you'd speak through your word, so speak through your word. And Jay said this, and it's either true or it's not. So begin to speak to me who I am and why I'm here. What would it look like for us to move through a year with a genuine sense of knowing why we are here? It might not look any different. Or it might look incredibly different. I don't know. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can gather together in this place. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for your heaviness here. God, your glory, your splendor, your holiness, it's on display, but it's not commercialized or packageable. God, show us who we are in light of that. God, tell us who we are. Tell us why we're here. And let all that we do be for your glory and your honor, that we might one day enjoy you forever. God, we don't have categories for this stuff. Begin to expand our imagination, I pray, to be in line with you and who you actually are. God, rather than us shaping you into what we can only conceive. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning we end with...